Good morning. Welcome to Trinity City Church. I'm Al, and I'm one of the elders here. Uh, maybe you're getting tired of elder preaching. It's been three weeks in a row, but I promise next week we'll have a professional back up here. Um, a lot of you are already releasing your kids to kids' care, but if you want to do that, uh, go ahead and do it now. Uh, this is a sermon series. We're in the summer in the Psalms, which is something we've done every summer pretty much since I've gone here. So we're uh, in the 80s, so we've been doing it for quite a while. We do 10 Psalms a summer. Um, so maybe in about six years, we'll finish all the Psalms. Uh, and that's uh, something that's kind of a good change of pace during the summer. So I want to get started by thinking about our church building. Think about all the architectural design and engineering it took to make this building as we find it today. Think about how challenging it must have been to hang a massive cross at the front of the sanctuary. Think about the attention to detail it took to install the giant pipes for the organ and make sure that it could play notes in tune. Ponder how much time it took artists to create the stained glass windows. Reflect on all the fond memories that have occurred here. Memories like baptisms, child dedications, Bible presentations, Christmas Eve services, and the joys of Easter morning. Remember how the front steps or the fellowship hall have been the perfect place to connect with a friend or two during a challenging time. Now, I want you to think about how you would feel if another country invaded the city of St. Paul and burned our church building to the ground? And more specifically, how would you feel about that country and people responsible for such an act? Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand, and understanding that we may believe, and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord, amen. There are three points I want to highlight today from Psalm 87. The first point is God is building a great city, which he loves. The second point is God has made a way for all nations, even his enemies, to be citizens of his city. And the third point is former enemies will join together as citizens of God's city to sing songs of praise to him and thanks for his life-giving water. Today's text is a psalm known as a psalm of Zion. The psalm of Zion praises the characteristics of God's chosen city of Zion, where he dwells with his people. Given that this is a psalm of Zion... Today we are going to dig into the history of God's city throughout Jewish history and what is to come in the new heaven and the new earth. After David conquered Jerusalem, he brought the Ark of the Covenant into its gates. The Ark of the Covenant contains the stone tablets inscribed with the covenant law that God provided to Moses. It also serves as the place where God will be present among his people, as described in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. God says, There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you 
and give you all my commands for the Israelites. The ark indicates the, presen the presence of God, and when David brings it to Jerusalem, he brings God's very presence to what is to be Israel's capital city. Then King Solomon built a great temple for God to dwell among his people. God's choice of Jerusalem as his chosen city is reflected in the opening lines of Psalm 87. He's founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. The mountain itself is not holy. The mountain is described as holy because God has chosen to dwell there, and he loves the city of Jerusalem. In a way, God choosing to dwell in Zion reminds me of Warren Buffett. <laughs> uh, and Warren Buffett is famed for having a lot of money and having a uh, giant business empire, of course, but he also loves Dairy Queen and Cherry Coke. And Google says uh, Warren Buffett's current net worth is $119.7 billion. Said another way, he's about as close of an example that we can find on this earth of a man with nearly infinite resources. Yet he chooses to consume Dairy Queen desserts and Cherry Coke whenever he gets the chance. And there are even stories where Buffett attends a dinner at a Four Seasons in New York City and he orders a cherry Coke. And they don't even have cherry Coke because it's not upscale enough. So they have to send some of the wait staff to a CVS or a pharmacy nearby to pick some up for him. And so that's how he got his cherry Coke. But Warren Buffett could afford to eat and drink the most expensive desserts and beverages our planet has to offer, but he chooses to stick with cherry Coke and Dairy Queen because he loves them. It's similar with God. God could choose to dwell anywhere he likes, but he chooses Zion because he loves the city and its people. But that's not the whole story. Eventually, Israel defiles God's city. Ezekiel's visions capture the idolatrous acts taking place on the temple grounds. Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 16 through 18 say this, he then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord, and there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. The space between the portico and the altar is reserved for priests as it is the entrance to the holy place within the temple, the place where God dwells. The men, in Ezekiel's vision, are using a space dedicated to the worship of God, to worship the Son, and they have literally turned their back on the presence of the Lord. And to some extent, this reminded me of uh, something that happened at a college I went to. So I attended a nearby college, and in December, before the end of the first semester, the school would always host an off-campus dance known as Winter Ball. And in this particular year, the dance was held at International Market Square, which is that big building. You can see it uh, when you're on I-94 going west. Um, it's in Minneapolis. 
And the building is an interior design marketplace. And as you can imagine, its decoration is pretty pristine. Uh, and the students at the college I went to, they generally have a tradition of getting fairly intoxicated before the event and then getting wild while they're there. And unfortunately, during this dance, students got pretty destructive and even started relieving themselves in potted plants around the building. The defilement of the building was so bad that my alma mater is permanently banned from ever holding another event at International Market Square. It doesn't matter how much money the college is willing to cough up for another event, International Market Square is out. They were disgusted by the behavior of the students. And God is even more disgusted by his own people worshiping the sun in a space that is meant for the worship of him. This is one of many of Israel's detestable acts that leads God's presence to, de presence to departing the temple. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23 states, The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. God's departure of his temple and city is significant because he is no longer dwelling with his people. Because the people of Israel chose to worship idols and turned away from the Lord, God allowed the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 17 through 20 details the fall of Jerusalem. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. And he did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials, they set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He, the, he carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The Jewish people returned to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile and rebuilt the temple. Later, King Herod expanded and improved the second temple only for it to be destroyed again by the Romans. Jerusalem under the rule of David and Solomon was never meant to be the full expression of God's city, but rather a preview of coming attractions. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 prophesizes God's city that is to come. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, 
for the old order of things has passed away. This Jerusalem will far surpass the first Jerusalem in its splendor. The Lord will also live with his people in a Zion that he loves more than all the dwellings of Jacob. It will also no longer be a city of a single nation, which leads me to my second point. God has made a way for all nations, even his enemies, to be citizens of his city. Let's look at Psalm 87, verses 3 through 6. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia, too, and Tyre, along with Cush, and will say, This one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her. In her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, This one was born in Zion. This is the part of the psalm where things start to get pretty crazy. The songs were the psalm book of Israel, and if their genre of choice were electronic dance music, otherwise known as EDM, the bass drop would definitely come after glorious things are said of you, city of God. And if you're not an EDM fan, uh, the bass drop is the part of the song where it accelerates, and then the bass goes crazy and you can feel it shake your whole body. You've probably been sitting at an intersection before where somebody is blasting EDM and it's literally shaking the cars nearby. My high school friend really liked EDM and he put subs in the back of his car and he would drive me around and I could not wait to get to the destination because I felt like the bass was literally going to jar my teeth from their gums. The words of this psalm would be even more jarring to the Jewish people. The psalmist's next words are, I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Really? Rahab and Babylon will acknowledge the Lord. In this psalm, Rahab is a sea monster that represents Egypt, not Rahab the prostitute. The same Egypt that enslaved the Israelites and subjected them to countless years of suffering. And Babylon, we already talked about, they besieged Jerusalem, stripped the temple of its most valuable parts, and burned it to the ground. This is the very temple where the presence of God dwelled among the Jewish people. Remember at the start of the sermon when I asked you about how you would feel about a country that came and destroyed our church building? Well, I don't know about you, but I would be enraged. I would not be thinking about writing a song about how the people who destroyed our church would eventually be citizens in the glorious city of God that we have long been anticipating. And this psalm goes even farther than just saying that God's enemies will acknowledge him. It literally says that it will be as if these enemies of God were born in Zion. And it keeps going, saying that the Most High himself will establish her. Seriously? God himself is going to make sure that these people have all the provisions and comforts they need to feel settled in a new city. And I recently read about what happens when high-profile athletes are traded in the middle of their season. 
The team hires a specialized firm with teams of realtors, movers, and transportation coordinators that help the athlete and eventually their family move to a new city in a very short period of time. These businesses help to arrange a new place to live, aid with furnishings, and provide the athlete with whatever they need to feel settled in an entirely new place. The experience sounds about as seamless as possible. If we as human beings can curate such a convenient method to help athletes move, how much better would God be at helping someone settle into his city? The Lord's hospitality is better than we can fathom, and in this psalm, he is bestowing it on his enemies. Here's a modern-day example of how radical this portion of the psalm is. Imagine if Ukraine issued a decree that allowed any Russian to come to Kyiv and be declared a citizen of Ukraine. And not only that, but the Ukrainian government also connected these Russians with their most talented employees to help them get settled in a new country and allocated generous resources to help with their relocation. Furthermore, current Ukrainians composed a song included in their national songbook about how the Russians would become citizens of their nation. How many of you think that's going to happen anytime soon? The Jewish people did not come up with the idea that their enemies would one day be citizens in God's holy city by themselves. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, recounts when God first calls Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and, ever, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The inclusivity of God's kingdom shows up at the end of this passage when God says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God doesn't say that only Israel or friends of Israel will be blessed. He says that all peoples will be blessed. This includes the enemies of Israel as we see in today's passage. Such a sentiment is clarified further by Paul in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6 says this, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Until the death and resurrection of Christ, it was unknown how God would bring all nations into his kingdom. Because Jesus died the death of a common criminal, bore all the sins of humanity and defeated death by rising to life on the third day, all people have a way into God's kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way for all nations to be a part of the kingdom of God. It is through faith in Christ that we will one day live a life without suffering and without being separated from God. Paul is another great example of how God worked in one of his enemies. Paul writes in Galatians 1, verses 23 through 24 of his own conversion experience. 
They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Jesus revealed himself to Paul, and Paul repented of his wickedness toward the church of Christ. He then turned to life, to a life of faith in Jesus Christ, and God used Paul to preach the gospel to an enormous number of people through Paul's writings in the New Testament. And we were all enemies of God at one point, all of us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. In this passage, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is Satan, God's first and primary enemy. Before Christ made us alive, we were all following the ways of Satan. Therefore, we were all enemies of God before we turned away from wickedness and followed the way of Christ through faith in him. Repentance from our former ways and placing all our faith in Jesus moving forward is the only requirement to be a part of his kingdom. This brings me to my final point. Former enemies will join together as citizens of God's city to sing songs of praise in him and thanks for his life-giving water. Verse 7 says, As they make music, they will sing. All my fountains are in you. People that were former enemies will experience the riches seen in John's vision at the conclusion of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22 verses 1 through 5 says this, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will not need, there, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. When God renews the heavens and the earth, there will be no more animosity between people, and sin will no longer be a barrier between us and God. This will lead to an outpouring of rejoicing, as we see in today's text in verse 7. Knowing that one day we will no longer have enemies, we should follow Jesus' commandment to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A personal example of someone living out this commandment occurred while I was in college and visiting home during winter break. While I was home, a school shooter entered the high school I attended and that my brother and sister were currently attending. The shooter shot and fatally wounded a single student before the school resource officer cornered the shooter and he took his own life. After the victim passed away, her father spoke at a memorial service open to the entire community. 
Fighting through tears, he forgave the shooter for the actions that took his daughter's life in front of thousands. Before witnessing this moment, my heart was full of rage at the shooter. Rage for ripping a sense of security from a place that should feel secure. Rage for entering a building where my brother and sister were with an intention to kill. And rage at a culture that promotes extreme violence. But this father who suffered an immeasurable loss stood in front of the entire community and forgave the person that caused it all. His statement was entirely unexpected, but it disarmed the anger seated deep inside me and ceased my hostility towards the shooter. If the man who lost his daughter could forgive, why couldn't I? The father wasn't going to let anger build in his heart, even towards his enemies. It is this heart that reigns in heaven and why those who suffer and repentant enemies are transformed by God. This is a small window into the life we will experience in the new Jerusalem, where enemies will cease to have animosity between one another. Sin, pain, violence, suffering, and death will be no more. We have a great hope in the saving grace of Jesus Christ and the new kingdom that he will bring about. And on that day, we get to look forward to an eternity of rejoicing.